You choose Columbus Business First every week to give you the inside industry intelligence for nearly every business sector in central Ohio. And Columbus Business First chose Crate Media as its official podcast partner for its unique show, Women of Influence, now 70 episodes strong. With 4 million shows, hundreds of millions of listeners, and industry advertising revenues approaching $4 billion, podcasting is the fastest growing audio medium in the U.S. From law to medical, construction to automotive, retail to real estate, every brand has a story. Let Crate Media help tell yours. Visit crate.media slash CBF to learn more about how we can help while receiving a free one-hour casting session with our expert producers, which will help to uncover and shape your company's branded podcast. To learn more about sponsoring Columbus Business First Women of Influence podcast, please email Advertising Director Steve Hewitt at shewitt at bizjournals.com to get started. That's S-H-E-W-I-T-T at bizjournals.com. Hi, everyone. This is Haley Colombo, a reporter at Columbus Business First, and I'm the guest host of this podcast, Women of Influence. The podcast features conversations with Columbus's leading women in which they talk about how they gained their power, how they keep it, and how other women can follow in their footsteps. Today, we're chatting with Elsie Johnson, the founder and CEO of Zora's House, who is also a writer, entrepreneur, and activist for empowering women, especially women of color. Thank you so much for joining us, Elsie. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I, I love that I'm being considered a woman of influence. We'll see how much uh, I have to share in the course you, of this conversation. You are a woman of influence for sure. So I think your story of founding Zora's House and how it took three years to become the first you know, paid employee at an organization that you founded is fascinating. And I'm wondering if you can share your journey to that moment where you finally became paid for all the work that you had put in? I think of this as kind of a two-part story. So I'd love to start off with just how this organization came to be in the first place. So I moved to Columbus from North Carolina in the summer of 2015. And I moved here with my husband, who's originally from Columbus, but had been living out of state for the past decade. We moved here and I have to say that he's very smart and savvy because he moved me here in the summertime and not in the wintertime because he knows that that would not have been a very lasting move. Being from the South, I think I've seen snow consistently one other time in my life when I lived in Boston. And upon the first real snow, I was like, well, I'm leaving here. So we moved to Columbus in, in 2015. And I was at a really interesting time in my life and in my career. So I was in my um, late 20s, going into my early 30s. Sheldon and I have been married for about four years. We were thinking about starting a family. And I was also coming off of four years of being self-employed, doing curriculum development and leadership development for women of color. Um, and so I knew that that was my passion. That's what I've been doing for some time, mainly as a speaker and a consultant. But for those past four years, I had been, you know, kind of like self-employed and doing it that way. And by the time I moved to Columbus, to be completely honest, I was really burnt out. I had spent about two years in what I consider like a traditional nine to five after graduating college when I decided that that really wasn't my jam and decided to go off on my own. And that had its own pros and cons, but definitely being a young Black woman in my 
mid twenties, kind of navigating this world as a consultant and a teacher and all of these different things, it just took a huge toll. It was, it was hard <laughs> to be honest. So by the time I moved to Columbus, I knew a couple things. One, I knew for a fact that I was done with entrepreneurship. I was like, I'm done. I'm tired. I'm done. I'm going to get a, a regular job. And I also knew that you know, like I said, Sheldon and I were interested in thinking about what were our next steps as a family. So those were the two things that were primarily on my mind. In addition to kind of coming here and thinking about, okay, where are the next steps of my career? I immediately said, I also want to find community. I moved here with my husband. He was the only person that I knew other than my in-laws. And I am somebody who's moved around a lot in my life. And I always say, I got to find some homies and I got to find a church and a hairstylist. Those are like my three. I'm like, if I don't have a church, a hairstylist and a couple people to watch Netflix with, like this is not home. So yeah. those were my pretty immediate priorities. So I was eventually able to find a hairstylist. But I was eventually <laughs> able to find a church. Um, however, listening on the podcast, she did an awesome hair flip just then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you guys are listening, you definitely missed the hair flip and it was epic. You know, my big thing was I was really starting to look for community and look for other women, especially women of color that I could really connect with. And because of the time that I was uh, at in my life in that time of transition, I was really invested in the idea of finding other black women and other, you know, women of color who understood the groundings of my experience as I was working through those transitions. And I had a really hard time finding them. I was looking for well, where are they gathering? Where are folks hanging out? Where are the spaces where I can go to kind of like, you know, dream and think through this transition that also um, allow me to be centered and grounded in my identity as a black woman. And I wasn't finding those spaces. And so the idea for Zora's house was really born out of that. It was born out of this desire to create a real tangible space and community for Black women, um, Indigenous women, other women of color to be rooted in their identities as women and as people of color, and also to be exploring and transitioning and supporting one another and building relationship. And that's where the idea of Zora's House came from. I think it was early 2016, you know, my husband and I, who, by the way, when I moved here, I was like, I'm so done with entrepreneurship. I'm not trying to do this anymore. I'm about to get a real job. And it was not six months later, one night we're laying in bed. And I was like, babe, I really feel like I want to start, you know, I had a dream about being in this place, this really amazing community space and being with all these really cool, like other women of color. And there was like music playing, people were checking emails. I was just like, babe, like I have to, I have to like, build this thing. And he was like, I'm sorry, when you say build, what, what exactly are you referring to? Like, what do you mean by that? And I was like, um, I want to open a co-working space and community space for women of color. And he was kind of like, are you serious right now? Because we literally, you just said that you are done with entrepreneurship. And now this is like the biggest idea that you've ever had. But to his credit, you know, we talked about it. He understood where that desire and need was coming from. And we really decided as a family to make that leap. So that is the story of how the idea for Zora's house came to be. That's amazing. It's so funny that you went from, I'm so burned out on entrepreneurship to what about this? What about this pivotal idea that I just have to do? 
I don't know if my husband would use the word funny, but I, it was definitely, you know, one of those moments where I think I was either still in college or just a couple of years out and I was talking to a mentor. She was talking about how she had been doing this work that was really challenging for her. I think it was like social justice and related to that space. And, and I asked her, I was like, why do you do this? Like, why do you do this? It just seems it's so hard. And she said to me, it would be harder not to. And that was the thing I think that spurred me when it came to thinking about whether or not I was going to pursue the launch of Zora's house. You know, I thought about like, am I really ready to tackle this? Like, we're ready to start a family. I just moved here six months ago. Like, you know, I've been on my own for the last four years. This is going to be so hard. And the answer that kept coming back to me when it came down to deciding what that next step was going to be was it would be harder not to do this. Wow. I might have to print that out and put that somewhere. <laughs> I think for a lot of folks who are listening and navigating a transitional moment in life or thinking about what comes next and wondering if what you have in store or what you feel like you're being called to is too big, too audacious, too crazy, you don't understand the path forward. Um, and I definitely found that that advice was really pivotal to me. So hopefully um, for some folks who are listening who may be navigating a similar moment, yes, it will be hard to go after what you think you're being called to do, but would it be harder for you not to do it? Would it be, are you at a place now where it's harder for you to stay where you are? than it is for you to make a big scary leap. And so in, I think the spring of 2016, we moved here in, in May of 2015. I think by February, 2016, we bought a vacant lot in the Wyland Park neighborhood of Columbus um, with the idea that we would create a live work space, something that would work for our growing family. At the time we were living in my in-laws basements. So don't think this was a real sexy, glamorous type situation because it wasn't. Uh, we were definitely, we were definitely those millennials, those millennial kids who like go off and get the like super expensive degrees that they're out in the world and they're like um actually I'm gonna come back and live with you for a few years. So we were those people just FYI. And again, if you're listening and that's you, that's a lot of us. And it's been a lot of us. Yeah. And so, you know, taking that step back and spending those few years to really get our finances in order to be able to invest in something. But that also meant that for Sheldon and I, you know, we had to make every dollar count. We needed a home for our family. And we needed a home for Zora's house. And so what we decided to do is really combine those concepts and see, is there a way for us to share space for us to live in a property and also have Zora's house be a tenant in the property or use part of the property. And we went through a lot of different iterations. We thought about renovating kind of like one of those old crusty old mansions that you see on like the Near East Side and, you yeah. know, some other neighborhoods. And we were like, man, can we rental this? And we have like an apartment upstairs. Or we thought about building something with like a garden apartment, like a basement level where it's like Zora's house has the main floors and we live in the basement area. We even looked at a storefront with like an apartment above it. We really were thinking about what are all the ways. And eventually what we did was we bought a vacant lot and we decided that it would be it would work best for our family and for Zora's house to be able to build two structures on the lot. So we have Zora's house, which is kind of like what fronts the street. Um, and it really just looks like an actual house. So it's really funny when people come to Zora's house uh, for the first time. And, and we've definitely had people kind of like ring the doorbell and be like, um, 
is this uh hi i'm looking for zora you know i'm just kind of being like um i hope your family home and you're not just a stranger the main house runs summit street and then in the back of our property we have a carriage house which is just like basically an apartment over the garage where we live and so that was our creative solution we knew that we would have better luck with getting financing from a residential construction perspective. We were two, you know, nonprofit employees with like, I mean, I just told you we're living in my in-laws basement. So it wasn't like we were rolling in cash. So trying to really be creative with how we were going to finance this. And one of the ways that we did that was actually by acquiring residential construction loans um, and then getting the necessary variances and things like that from the city to operate Zora's house within this structure, then we probably would have had less luck going for a traditional commercial loan. And I think that idea of, you know, Haley, at the beginning you asked about, well, How, you know, what has this journey been like for the last three years of getting to the point where you are officially working at Zora's house, a full-time salaried employee? And I would just say, you know, from, from our very origin, we have always had to, and I specifically have always had to be, be very creative with how we were going to finance this project and what resources that we were going to use. And a lot of what that has meant has been, again, thinking about how do we stretch every dollar, the residential versus the commercial, to think about how can we do this a different way that may be more feasible for us. Early on, we initiated a program called the Ambassador Program, which is like a six-month kind of like long-term volunteer exchange where we have volunteers who basically run the space for six months. They commit to being in the space eight hours a week for six months, and in return, they are full members of Zora's house. They get usage of the space for their own events and programs. And then they also get leadership development and some additional perks. And so we knew, well, we can't afford staff. I had a full-time job by that time and have had a full-time job since 2016 when we decided to really build and and launch this project. It's always been a matter of, of utilizing our resources and thinking very, very creatively about how we were gonna get things done. I didn't know that about about the kind of house arrangement. That's so cool. Slash, I'm sure it's been a journey. (laughs) It is definitely, you know, when we first had this idea, I pitched it to my husband trying to like make it as sexy as possible. I was like, what about a live work situation? He was like, um, once again, he's been married to me long enough that he just literally just looks at me sometimes like, all right. (laughs) But to his credit, I oftentimes am the ones to introduce these grandiose ideas. And he has been, you know, such a supportive partner in all of this because our family has had to commit so many resources to this project. I mean, it, it was our entire all of our savings to be able to build Zora's house. And we actually broke ground on the structure itself the day I gave birth to my son. And so it literally has been a full family endeavor (laughs) to get this off the ground. And yeah, it, it definitely has had, I think, anytime you're being creative with resources, you know, if somebody would have come to me in, in 2017, we were building Zora's house or 2018, um, or even earlier and said, you know what, Elsie, this is just a great idea. And I just know that like in the next five years, this is going to be it. You're going to have garnered, you know, all these folks in the community who support this and we're going to have a global pandemic and also like <laughs> racial uplift and 
you are going to be well positioned to like support that through the work of empowering women of color. Let me give you a million dollars and you don't have to work about a thing for the next five years. Right. I would have been like, um, excuse me, here's where you can send the check. Thank yeah. you. But you know, that didn't happen. Our journey has been one of scrappiness and creativity and community support. And in some ways I'm, I'm almost grateful that has been the case because I think it's really shaped us as an organization as well. You mentioned family a couple times, and I want to point out that you've shared before that during this whole period, not, well, you just shared about, you know, breaking ground and giving birth on the same day, but you've had two babies during this experience. Can you tell us how you kind of managed your stepping into motherhood while balancing this, you know, building this big dream organization and how did that work and I guess how is it working still that is a really good question that I don't think has a very concrete or time delineated this was the moment when I was I realized I was this very balanced parent to your point my son was born the day that we broke ground on Zora's house we moved into our house the carriage house when he was 10 months old so he was born in February. We moved into the carriage house December of that year. Zora's house opened a few months later in, I think, April of 2018. And so, so many of those life moments have been inextricably intertwined, you know, between family and Zora's house and dreaming. And honestly, I think that that is a hallmark of Black parenthood. I think this idea of birthing children and at the same time navigating what it means to build a different future, right? I think of all of all parents, I think of so many Black parents who are so deeply invested in future building at the same time as they are raising children, because we know we do not want our children growing up in the world that exists right now, right? And so I think I stand on the shoulders of so many ancestors who have always done that work. And I think side by side, so many Black parents and other parents of color who are doing that work constantly. For me, I think what that has looked like is I often compare kind of my journey as a leader and especially as a founder um, as being so parallel to developing me as a whole person, right? Because there's something about entrepreneurship. There's something about literally putting your idea baby into the world and caring for it that brings out every insecurity that you have, every fear you have about not being good enough, every fear you have about not being smart enough, about not being worthy. I think all of that comes to bear, right? When you have to get people to follow and believe in your ideas, when you have to ask for resources and support, any work that you haven't done around what it means to be able to accept support, right? That's gonna come up. I know it came up for me. I know for many women, we're so used to being caretakers, but not used to being cared for. And when you're building something, that becomes a piece of it, right? You, you can't do it on your own. There comes a point where you have to let other people in. So I think along the way, there have always been these moments where Zora's house has required for me as a leader to really step into my authenticity, to be confident in my worth, to understand and battle that, that perfectionism that I have, right? And that urge that I often find myself in to prove right, that I deserve. And I, and I know that part of that urge comes from me. We, we talk to women a lot about like, don't imposter syndrome, like women have imposter syndrome. You just need to be more confident. And we don't often talk about the fact that 
that imposter syndrome isn't something that we were born with. We are told over and over again in many different spaces that we are not worthy, that we don't belong there, that we're not smart enough. We are conditioned to have that imposter syndrome. So I always like to make sure that context is, is fully present in those discussions because so quick, as always, we are to blame women, blame people of color and, and say, well, y'all need to pull yourselves up. Y'all need to figure it out. And it's like, well, that's true. But also research tells us that like women still aren't valued. They still don't make the same as men with equal credentials, right? Uh, research tells us that like women still aren't promoted at the same rate, whether they're confident or not, whether they're competent or not, it's not all in our head. And so I think for me having to be in a space where I had to tackle those things head on, especially the pieces around worthiness. I think that was my, that has always been, I think the challenge that has come up for me around whether or not I'm worthy. Am I worthy to be here? Is my idea worthy? Is what I'm doing good enough? I have succeeded across my life and career in many competitive, predominantly white spaces where people have made it very, very clear to me that they thought I didn't belong. And so I, coming into Zora's house, and part of the reason I built Zora's house was so that Black women and other women of color could literally and physically exist in a space that was built with them in mind, right? Because so many of us navigate spaces that either A, were not built with us in mind, um, and I'm talking about workspaces, educational spaces, community spaces, or B, are actively hostile to our presence. And so it gets to the point where you almost forget what it feels like to be in a space that's for you, that is for your dreams, that is for your desire, that is for your leadership, that is for your creativity, that's for you. And so having Zora's house as that space where somebody can walk in and their body can remember their body, even, even before their mind gets to the point of like, oh, let me drop down some of my defenses. Let me take off the mask. Let me feel comfortable in my skin as a Black woman, as a Latina woman, as an AAPI woman, as a non-binary person of color. Let me take off that mask. Even before we mentally do that work, I wanted a physical space where our bodies could remember what it felt like to not have to prove right, to be worthy inherently. And that's something that I've had to model. And, and the reason why that comes up for me when you ask about the balance of being a mom um, is because motherhood is like that too, right? It's, it, it is a series of moments where you don't feel good enough, an endless number of moments when you feel like you may or may not be doing this wrong. And amidst those moments, there is joy. Amidst those moments, there is growth. Amidst those moments, there is learning, right? But at the same time, those moments really exist. And I think parenthood to me mirrors so closely the journey of an entrepreneur, the journey of giving birth, of nurturing self and idea or whatever it is that you put into the world. I've tried to give myself lots of grace and recognize that like, I'm not always going to be perfect. I've tried to find moments of celebrating and really focusing in on the moments of joy. And I've tried to remind myself that I'm worthy no matter what. And I'll say this as well, because all of that being said, especially in those first few years where I was working a full-time job and growing Zora's house, you know, I was working 60 to 80 hours a week. I was working every single weekend. I was working, put my kids to bed and I'd be on my computer, writing grants, uh, developing program strategy, doing all of these things, right? I was, and it was really challenging and it was really a sacrifice for my family as well. I often 
have found myself where I'm, where when I, when somebody tells me, oh, can you do this? Or how did you do this? How did you do that for four years? Right. I'm like, I, I don't know how I did it. But when somebody tells me like, oh, can you do this? Can you manage, you know, a family and career and building a business? And I'm immediately going to say yes. And I very rarely think about, okay, yes, you did it. But what was the cost? What was the cost to your family? What was the cost to your mental health? What was the cost to your physical health? And so I'm at that space now. And I think that was those, the answers to those questions and those questions themselves are what really drove me in, you know, 2019 to say enough. We've got to figure out how I can move into full-time leadership because this is not, this is not sustainable. This is not sustainable. Balance is not a word that is a part of my universe and I want it back. So the question that you asked is the same question around being present as a, as a partner, as a parent, and as a person, as a whole human being present in my own life was what drove me to say, okay, now is the time I can no longer, this Zora's house is growing to the point where it needs full-time leadership and I need to be a full human again. And so we got, somebody's got to be paying somebody something and, and <laughs> I need to be in that equation somewhere. I think something that we've talked about before, but then I was, I was looking at Zora's house, uh, social media and something I, I thought was, you know, kind of came up was embracing the idea of self-care again, especially for black women and women of color who are often basically taking care of everybody else. What does self-care mean to you? And what does that look like for you? And why do you think that's so important to kind of bring back into what is, I guess, valued? Yeah, so there is a really phenomenal Audre Lorde quote. And for those of you who are listening and are not familiar with Audre Lorde, she is a queer Black feminist and scholar. She has amazing works around intersectionality and Black feminism. But I will be honest, before I even read any of her stuff, I just read her quotes. And I was like, I don't know who this woman is, but first of all, mind your business. Why are all your quotes so relevant to my life? And I know there are people who are listening who like to pretend like they know somebody's scholarship, but really they've only read like quotes of their work. And you know what? I'm not mad at you. Keep it up. I'm not mad at you. That was me with Audrey Lord for a long time. But there was one quote in particular that she has about self-care that really has always resonated with me. And again, you have to remember this is spoken from the perspective of a queer Black woman, differently abled Black woman activist. And she said, self-care is an act of self-preservation. And self-care is not selfish. It's an act of self-preservation. And that is an act of political warfare. I love that quote. And I totally, those are not the exact words. So you're going to have to go and get all of Audrey's brilliance. But, you know, the whole purpose of that quote is this idea that like, when we care for ourselves, right, when we care for ourselves, it allows us to maintain and exist and be the people that our communities need and that our families need and that our movements need. That idea of caring for self is not selfish. It is about preserving our full humanity in this process because that humanity is what informs our leadership. And especially if you are a queer Black woman in 2021 or any time prior, like self-preservation has always been for us an act of political warfare in worlds and societies that would have not seen us live, that would have been okay with our complete genocide, right? Like us living, the power of us saying, I am alive, I am alive and I'm worthy of care. That is an act of political warfare, 
right there. It is a statement. And I think, you know, I always say it, it just gives me chills because I think there's something so powerful about that. And so that is a way that I've kind of really reminded myself that my needs are worthwhile, my needs are important. And when I find myself going down the path, which I sometimes do, of saying, you know what, I'm actually just going to work 80 hours this week and I'm not going to go to the gym. I'm not going to sleep that well. And my anxiety is going to have me drinking wine like every day at 6 p.m. Like when I find myself in those spaces, which are real spaces, right? That's real time. I have to remind myself that like what I am fighting for and what Zora's house stands for is freedom, freedom for women and femmes and non-binary people of color to lead and dream and create and have joy. And if I'm not having those things, if I'm not having joy, if I'm not having freedom, then I have to sit down and check myself because it's hard for me to lead an organization and a movement that's grounded on those principles. And then in my own life, be like, actually, I'm like completely exhausted, never care about myself, like have prioritized everybody else over myself. And so I think being a leader of a space like this also you know, keeps me honest. It keeps me accountable because when I'm out here, I have to practice what I preach. And that's been a huge piece of, I haven't always done it and I still don't do it perfectly, but it does ensure that I am being honest with myself about where I am in terms of prioritizing care for my own self and my own freedom and my own joy. I think also self-care is something that like, again, like as women, we're pro- we're always like judging ourselves, like we're not doing it right. We're not doing it enough. And it's like, well, you can come back to it too. You know, you can recognize that you worked 60 hours and are burned out and didn't do it exactly right. And then come back to it, you know, and do it better the next time or whatever. So that's always an option for folks too. Like we don't have to like judge ourselves completely. We get another shot at it every day. So one of the things that I like love about your guys' mission is like, you mentioned this before, like catalyzing and supporting the dreams of black women and women of color. Kind of simply put, like, why is that so, why is that important to Columbus? It's interesting because at the end of February, we had a retreat with our board and during that time, we really sat down and and we talked about our mission. We talked talked about our vision, right? Our, our long-term vision for the world. And what was so interesting, I don't think this is any place public, but what we talked about in that, in that vision was creating a world where communities of color are able to dream, create, and lead free from the burden of white supremacy, patriarchy, and other forms of oppression. And what was so fascinating, and we talked about this over the retreat, we kind of like debated a little bit, is that in our vision, our vision for the world, the words women of color are not included in that vision. We talk about creating a world for people of color and all people. And then at the end we say, and we believe that world begins with women of color, right? And I, I say that because women of color live at the intersection of so many other identities, right? And the fact that like, you know, we talk about let's liberate women and let's make, let's create a movement that's all about liberating women, right? And we saw how that worked. We saw, we saw Susan B. Anthony and her homies and how, you know, white feminism has um, existed and been exclusive towards the needs of black women and other people of color, right? It is, it is totally possible 
to uplift some women and not others, right? Same with like racial, racialized movements. So often like, you know, we center masculinity and male leaders within those movements. And so where do you have, when we start talking about what it means freedom for women of color and other oppressed populations, when those folks are free, like, then you know you've broken the bounds for women, you've broken the bounds for people of color, like you, you've broken the bounds when you start talking about women and non-binary people, of folks of different sexual orientations and gender identities, when, all, when those folks, those folks who have been marginalized from various perspectives, when they achieve freedom to dream and create and lead, then we know everybody else has it, right? Because they may just have one of those those things. So I think oftentimes it is so important to catalyze and support and nurture the dreams and the creativity and the leadership and the activism and the healing of Black women and other women of color. Because first and foremost, we live in an increasingly complex and globalized world. We saw that with the pandemic. We know that within the next 30 years in this country, women of color will be the majority of women in this country. And so when we think about the future, even with those numbers in mind, we're gonna need all hands on deck. And if we are not catalyzing, if we are not supporting, if we are not nurturing the dreams of women of color, we are leaving out this whole huge population um, of leaders and dreamers and scholars and folks who could and should be contributing to our future. So I would say it's incredibly important for communities across the country to be mindful of that. And I would just say as a Black woman and somebody, again, who looks at the history of Black women in this country, I would say because we deserve it, because we, we've been here, right? We've been here like building buildings, building societies, birthing children into chattel slavery and building communities and living and surviving and thriving despite. And it's time for us to survive and thrive because of, right? It's time for us to be poured into the way that we have always poured into this country and our community and our people. Um, We just deserve it. It's past time. So those two things I think are, are important in this moment. For anyone listening to this, you know, for any folks listening to this who feel like maybe they haven't been supported in pursuing their own dreams, or maybe they haven't even thought about their own dreams, right? Because they've been focused on their families or focused on anything else, like that maybe feel like they have more to do or like more that they're called for. Like, what would your advice to those folks be? I want to share with you a little bit about my background. We started this interview and I was talking about 2015 when I first moved here, but I want to take you back to um, being a child. And my mom is one of my greatest role models, always has been. She graduated from college with a degree in economics because that's what her parents told her that she needed to do. She always wanted to be a writer, but they told her that writing was not a stable career. And especially coming from parents who grew up in the Jim Crow South and being a college student in the 70s and, you know, having in the 80s and having that experience, you know, she did. So she got her econ degree went to work on Wall Street, and she was completely miserable. She hated it so much. And eventually her and my dad decided that my mom should quit her job and that she should pursue her dream of writing. And I remember her making that decision completely changed the trajectory of my childhood because my mom 
decided that she wanted to pursue her dreams. There were times when we weren't paying light bills, where we dealt with housing insecurity, where we dealt with lots of different things that people in poverty deal with, right? Where we had these moments where financially we were dealing with poverty. Mm -hmm. And there were so many people who told my mom that she was so selfish for doing that, that she was so selfish for putting her family through that. And, you know, so selfish for like pursuing her dreams and she should just get a job and this and that, that and this. And like, why would she do that? What type of mother was she? And my dad, similarly, like, why, why was he supporting her and this and that and that and this. And what I will say is that I thank my mom every day for giving me that example of her being a wife and a mother and still believing that deeply that her dreams mattered her dreams mattered. And she, you know, yeah, we didn't grow up. We didn't have a lot of toys. Like there was times that we struggled with a roof over our head. And I'm not saying that everybody needs to take that leap. My parents were young. And although we did not have a lot financially, like we had so much joy, you know, I literally remember one time where we were not able to pay a light bill. So the lights were shut off and this and that. And I remember we were like in this small apartment that had very little furniture. And, you know, my mom lit up the fireplace and, you know, made us like grilled sandwiches and told ghost stories. And it just felt like, well, this is just what's happening. But I think the gift that she really gave me was for me to see. And there are a lot of people who might think that's unpopular. Oh, that is selfish. Like, why would you put your kids through that? But like, we matter. Like, what we want matters. Like, everything is not about what we can and can't do for our kids. And not what we can and can't provide for our, for our spouses, right? Like, we matter too. And I think growing up and seeing that example from my mom and seeing how much she was willing to do for her own dreams. Like, now that I am older and I have children of my own that lives within me and I know you know what like yeah I love y'all and I want to make sure that you know I'm taking care of you but I also my dreams matter like I have things on this earth that like I need to do so we got to figure this out together because it's not going to be all kids all the time like every decision isn't going to be about well what does this mean for like we can't disrupt the kids we can't do this for the kids we can't like both my husband and I have been very clear in our parenting and in our partnership around making sure we honor who we are as whole people and also recognizing that kids are resilient and if they go through some things or there's some hardships that's okay because they're not the only people who matter in our family and I I want my kids to know that too when they get older and they have families they have partners that like yeah, you know what? Sometimes you're going to have to ask for something from the people around you. You're going to have to ask or demand sacrifices from the people around you so that you can have what you want. And so often, like, women are not willing to do that. And I'm so glad every day that my mom was. And because she was, I am. I love it. I love it so much. A note that I wanted to end on was, like, I love the fact that Zora's house is the namesake of that is Zora Neale Hurston. What is a favorite quote or like inspirational nugget that we could end on to set the tone for the podcast or set the tone for, you know, the rest of the rest of the day, you know, after folks listen to this? Yeah, I love that. So for those of you who aren't familiar with Zora Neale Hurston, 
Hudson. She was a writer and anthropologist who worked primarily in the 1920s through the 1960s. She is a writer who I came across. She's a, a favorite of my mom's. But what I really love and what inspired uh, the name Zora's House is, is her story, which is that Zora Neale Hurston wrote during a time where a lot of folks did not really appreciate her work. She was one of the most prolific kind of like writers during the Harlem Renaissance and the time around there. But there were a lot of Black scholars, folks in her own community who didn't appreciate their work, her work. And at the time, there were a lot of folks in the African-American community who believed that our literature, our art, dance, whatever it was, those expressions of creativity should elevate and kind of like only show that Black folks are are just as good and just as smart and just as educated as white folks, that those things should be um, an expression and a way to prove that we are fully human and fully worth worthy. And so a lot of folks did not like the fact that Zora Neale Hurston didn't write that way. She first of all wrote in dialect. So she wrote in dialect of recently immigrated, uh, emancipated like slaves and their ancestors, folks who had no formal education. She wrote their stories in their dialect and she celebrated women who smoked and drank and got divorced and were hard headed. All of these things that I believe make us so fully human, she took those things and she turned them into art. And I love that about her story. I love that she took what other folks looked at and said, uh, what is this? This ain't perfection. Like this ain't showing our best foot forward. And she said, you know what? Our humanity is our best foot forward. And I love that about her work. And I also love that it was unfortunate that Zora Neale Hurston also died penniless in an unmarked grave, despite all the work and contributions that she had made during her lifetime. And it was Alice Walker, while she was a professor at Barnard, who discovered some of Zora's work and ended up writing a piece called In Search of Zora Neale Hurston that really talks about Zora Neale Hurston and her work and her life. And, and she brought Zora Neale Hurston back into our modern conversation around Black literary figures. And so this idea that like one woman, you know, can bring another woman to light, I just, everything about that story is so inspiring to me. And I hope that for those of you listening, if you take away any gems, it's that your humanity, your authenticity is your best foot forward. And that finding the communities of folks who are going to support and honor the fact that you are a full person and you are deserving of your dreams, your desires, and your joy, even as you serve all of the other roles that you may serve in your life. I love it. Thank you so much, Elsie. I really appreciate it. This was fantastic. And I am so excited to see how Zora's house progresses into the, into the future. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me.